I would encourage you this time to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6. We're going to begin our reading in verse 9, coming back to a passage that we already heard preached last week. We're going to come back to it and pick up some items that we did not get to. So turn with me to Genesis 6. I will read from verse 9 through verse 22. We're going to be looking again first at the genealogy that starts this new section of Genesis, followed by the declaration of the wickedness of man and the first speech of God with regard to that. So we're going to hear that together. Let's look there, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask that he would illumine it for us. Father, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding of what he has superintended at the hand of Moses for the sake not only of Israel as they were leaving Egypt toward the promised land, but for the sake of your people, your church in every age. May we hear the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speak through his word by the spirit 
into our own hearts and minds so that we would grow in our faith in him. We ask, Father, that you would be gracious to us in the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every wedding that I have ever conducted shares a commonality. There are several commonalities, but one that I want to point out today is the commonality of a bride who is busily making herself ready for her wedding day. They all share that. The bride is excited to be her very best for the moment her groom sees her on her wedding day. And Jesus uses that analogy of a bride preparing for the wedding to teach us to be ready for his return. In fact, last week when I pointed out to you that Jesus is teaching us to be ready for his return by teaching us about Noah, it's after that that he eventually comes to the analogy of brides preparing or virgins preparing for their wedding day. Now what's different in Jesus' day with regard to weddings is that the bride didn't know which day the wedding day was going to occur. They would become what we would call engaged. Really for them it was called betrothal. The groom would go off and make himself ready and make the household ready and prepare for his bride. And then at some point at which the bride did not know, the groom would come with the wedding party and thus would commence the wedding day. And so the brides made themselves ready every day. Imagine that, ladies. Prepared themselves every day for that day. And Jesus picks up that analogy and he says, Listen, church, people, you need to ready yourself every day for my return. Just as the bride readies herself every day for the return of her groom. Jesus says, I will return to judge the living and the dead. And he commands us to be ready for that great day. Now, last week, I contended that we can learn how to prepare for the return of Christ from Noah. And I spent the bulk of my time in this passage from Genesis 6, 9 through 22, kind of bringing you back into focus that Genesis is arranged around genealogies. You have a genealogy and then a story that follows that comes to an end and you have sometimes a preview of the next genealogy and story that follows. And here we pick up the genealogy of Noah. And I talked about how the story of Noah here and the preparation of the ark in God's first speech is teaching us about how God prepared Noah. He prepared him by covenanting grace to Noah. He spoke to Noah. And I showed how this story is really a picture of the whole history of salvation in a nutshell. As one righteous man boards what is akin to a coffin and goes through the floodwaters of God's judgment and the waters are separated and he has what Peter compares to a resurrection bringing the animals along with him so they might reproduce and a new creation begin in him. 
And it's a picture of what comes in Christ. Well, this morning, I want to look more expressly at the example that Noah is to us. Last week, I said Noah is a type of the coming Christ. In him, we're seeing the whole picture of redemptive history in a nutshell. This week, I want to look at Noah as an example. Last week, I showed you how God prepared Noah for coming judgment. Today, I want to show you how Noah prepared for coming judgment. And one comes first. Grace precedes faith. And so we now look at Noah's example. How did Noah prepare for coming judgment? Thus, what should we learn from Noah's example? We're expected to learn from Noah's example. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these Old Testament saints are an example for us. Interestingly, in Greek, tupos, a type. And I think they're more than just an example, but using that word in both sense. They're a picture of what's to come in the gospel, and they're an example of how we ought to walk with the Lord. The New Testament holds up the story of Noah and tells us to learn from it. We'll look at a couple of those passages today. It tells us to learn from it about how we're to prepare for judgment. So in an effort to consider Noah's preparation, I really want to consider three aspects of Noah's preparation. First, I want to consider Noah's faith. Second, I want to consider Noah's hope. And third, I want to consider Noah's love. So those are the three that we'll look at this morning, the three aspects of Noah's preparation. So let's look first at Noah's faith. Look with me at Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. Now listen to the description of Noah in contrast to the world around him. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, how do I know that this is about Noah's faith? I'm going to pick up one more verse, press on it as well. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And what I want to argue first is that in all of this language of righteousness, blamelessness, walking with God, and obedience, the first thing we're being taught about is Noah's faith. You might say, but that word isn't there, so why do you argue that? Well, Moses states that Noah was both righteous and blameless, and that he walked with God. He was righteous or just before God in accord with his law. He was just before God in accord with his law. He was blameless, or if you will, without hypocrisy. He was sincere. He was earnest. In other words, Noah was sincere in his trust and obedience to the Lord. Goes on to say, he walked with God. Now this same language is used elsewhere in Genesis. Look over at Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24. Enoch, now it says it twice, it says it both in verse 22 and 24. We're just going to look at verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. See, Enoch walked with God, the same language. As with Enoch, Noah walked with God. Now, how did they walk with him? 
How did Enoch and Noah walk with God? Well, they did so through faith. Through faith. Look at Hebrews 11. Keep your hand there in Genesis 6 and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll start in verse 5. We have this description of the faith of the Old Testament saints as they look to Christ, who was to come. In Hebrews 11, I want to start in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That's an interesting phrase. Where does it say in Genesis 5, 22 or 24 that Enoch was commended As having pleased God. Well, it says he walked with God. So you know, some of the Greek translations of the Old Testament, one that we have collected that we call the Septuagint, but some of the collections of Greek translations change the word walked. When they translate to Greek, they say pleased. Enoch pleased God. That they say it again in chapter 6, that Noah pleased God. And the author of Hebrews, who I believe is the Apostle Paul, as you know, because you were with me in Hebrews, says that he was commended as having pleased God. Now, how does one please God? Look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now we're going to go to Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. See, he did all that God commanded him. By faith, he did all that God commanded him. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When Noah was a righteous man, where did he Come by that righteousness. Or how did he come by that righteousness? It was given to him by faith. The righteousness of God was his through faith. If you will, by faith, Noah built the ark. Noah believed God's covenant promise. And it was credited to him as righteousness. We will see the same later with Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. We will hear that Abraham believed God's promise in the covenant, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But in what did Noah trust, or rather, in whom did Noah trust? Well, I want to remind you of the story up till now. God creates everything, and it's very good. God creates Adam and Eve to walk in the garden with him in accord with his law. And he makes a covenant with them. They are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we learn that the serpent, Satan, slithers into the garden and deceives Eve and tempts them into disobedience against God. And Adam and Eve comply with Satan's temptation and they cast humanity 
into sin and rebellion. And God comes and curses. And when he curses, his first curse is upon the serpent or Satan. And in that curse, really in some sense, in the middle of a curse, the first words that Adam and Eve hear are words of grace to them. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. And Adam and Eve believed that promise. Adam even changed his wife's name to the mother of all the living, knowing the seed of the woman was coming through her. And God cut the animals and clothed them and covered their nakedness. And they passed on their religion to their children. Abel believed. Cain did not. Seth believed. Some of Seth's sons believed. As you go down his family line, namely, to Noah. Noah believed. What is he believing? He's believing that the seed of the woman is coming. He's believing God's promise that he will bring the Messiah and put the devil and his works to an end and save his people from their sins. He's believing that promise. God even tells him in this speech, I will establish my covenant with you. Now, when he says, I will establish my covenant with you, he's not saying, I'm beginning a new covenant with you, Noah. He's saying, I'm making good on my prior covenant that I've already brought you into. That's how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, because the Lord elected to covenant with Noah. We hear that in the prophetic word of Noah's own father. Noah's own father says, this one will bring rest to the land, so I'll call his name Noah, before he's, well, really, at his birth. The Lord has set him apart to bring the fulfillment of his covenant promise that this Messiah, whom we're waiting for from the fall, this second Adam, will come, and I'm going to make good my word through you, Noah. I'm going to... Bring judgment upon the world. But that isn't my final word. My final word is coming through the seed in your line who will save all the peoples of the earth. And Noah believes that promise. Now how do we know that Noah trusted in the covenant promise of the Messiah? Let me provide you three reasons. I've hinted at all of them. First, we know that Noah believed it because the Lord looked upon Noah with grace, Genesis 6, 8. And if the Lord looked upon him with grace, then that grace grants him, if you will, the gift of faith. It gives it to him. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So that no man shall boast. God gives you grace 
And when he does, he gives you the grace of faith so that you believe and you're saved and you did nothing. You were a helpless sinner upon whom God poured out his loving kindness and you received it through faith. Second, we know that Noah believed in this promise because the Lord told Noah that through the ark he was making good his covenant promise. I will establish my covenant. He's making good on it. The Lord would save Noah and his household so that he might send the seed of the woman through Noah's line. Third, we know that Noah believed in the Christ because we're told as much in the New Testament. Say, how are we told as much in the New Testament? It says Noah believed God with regard to the ark. Look back at Hebrews 11. It said that he believes him with regard to the ark. Where does it say he was believing in the Christ, though? Look down at Hebrews 11, verse 39. Look down there. As he sums up all of the faith of the Old Testament saints, he says this in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, they were trusting in the coming Christ, but he had not yet come. He goes on to say, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You see, until the Christ comes in the new covenant era, they're not going to be made perfect, and neither are we. And he's come. Now, let's drop down And take this a bit further. The Christ was covenanted to the Old Testament saints and they trusted in him. They trusted in him. But he did not come in their lives. Now I want you to remember that Noah is a prophet. God speaks to Noah and then Noah goes out and proclaims that. And as a prophet, as one to whom God spoke directly, he was a man who heralded that message of righteousness. In fact, we're told in 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah was a herald of righteousness. But I want you to hear that when Noah was heralding righteousness, he knew he was preaching the Christ. Look at 1 Peter. You just have to go over two books. 1 Peter and chapter 1. Two books toward the book of Revelation. And verse 10. After Peter sums up this incredible salvation that we have through Christ, he says this in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Do you hear what he says there? The Spirit of Christ is in the Old Testament prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, and they knew that. And one of those prophets is Noah. I'll show you that in a second. But look what he goes on to say. It was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were serving not themselves, but you. In other words, they knew he was to come, not in their era, but later, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels... Long to look. Now how do I know Noah was one of these prophets preaching Christ in this way? Look over at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, I think that ought to be capital S, in which the spirit of Christ, in which he, that is Christ, by the spirit, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, the spirits that are now in prison, those who did not believe, you listen, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Catch this for a second, if you will. He's saying that there are people now in prison, i.e., they are now condemned, that were alive during Noah's day. And the reason they're now condemned is because during Noah's day, the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah the herald of righteousness about their salvation being found only in Christ, and they did not obey. They did not listen. They did not heed the warning. And then he goes on to say, that ark that they could have been on to be saved, or that they should have been building their own arks alongside of him, that it corresponds to baptism, which now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism doesn't save you because the water is magical, but because there's both the subjective belief in the gospel and, look what he goes on, as an appeal to God for good conscience, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're trusting in the salvation that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism is giving you that same picture that Noah's Ark gave you. That, if you will, Christ is saving you through the floodwaters of God's judgment and bringing you out of them to new life so that you're crucified with Christ and yet you live. Not you, but Christ who lives within you. In the life you live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The Spirit of Christ prophesied through Noah. And Noah did not merely preach the coming flood. He preached the eternal wrath to which that flood pointed. Noah did not merely preach about and build the ark that brought him through the flood. No, he preached the true ark who brings us through the flood waters of God's judgment, our Lord Jesus Christ. He preached the righteousness by faith found in the seed of the woman or in Christ alone. Please don't misunderstand me, beloved. It is not faith itself that makes you righteous and saves you, but Christ, our righteousness, saves you through faith. Noah preached Christ and all his gracious benefits. Noah's faith was not ultimately in the ark that carried him through the temporal floodwaters, but in that greater ark, the Lord Jesus, 
who would bring him safely through the eternal floodwaters of God's judgment that were coming for his sin. Noah trusted in the Christ. He knew the Christ was the one he was waiting for. And he preached justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Noah received the grace of faith from the Lord. And it was Noah's faith in God's promises and his warnings that led Noah to prepare for judgment. By faith, he felled the trees needed for all that wood. Think about how much work that would be. That ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, roughly, with three floors and rooms, etc. Imagine how long it took that man to fell the trees and prepare the wood and then fasten that together. He did that by faith. By faith, he heeded God's word as he waited for its fulfillment of the coming flood for 120 years. Noah trusted the Lord. He believed God in his covenant promises. He trusted God in his word. He trusted the Lord in his grace. Noah's faith was demonstrated in reverent fear of God and obedience to God. And Noah's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Note that. I want you to note it. Noah could not see the outcome of God's promise for 120 years. Yet Noah believed the promise and the warning. He believed that God is holy and that God will not tolerate wickedness. He saw the foolishness of the world who thought that God's patience was somehow either tolerance of their sin or affirmation of it. He believed that God is true to his own word and that he will show loving kindness to fallen man by sending the seed of the woman. This means that Noah believed that God would rescue his people. He believed that God would keep his word to send the seed of the woman through him. Ultimately, Noah trusted in the Christ. Beloved, Christ and all that he offers is ours through faith. Noah was looking forward to Christ's coming. We are looking back to the Christ who's come and preparing for his second coming. And Christ is our justification received by faith. Everyone who believes in his name has their sins forgiven and they're counted as righteous. So the question I have for you is, do you know him? Are you looking to Christ in faith? Oh, sinner, look to Christ. Look to Christ. I know you might reply, but my sin has been so great these many years. Could God really love me? Would God really save me? Friends, God patiently held out his hand to a wicked generation in Noah's day for 120 years. And what's more, God holds out Christ before you even now. And he says to you, even to you, for I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
So look to him and be saved. Trust in Christ's work on the cross where he endured the floodwaters of God's judgment for everyone who would ever believe and resurrected from the dead. Trust him and repent of your sins. Turn from yourself and your sins and look to God and walk in godliness. For the grace of faith is demonstrated in repentance from sin and obedience to God's voice. See, Noah's faith was demonstrated in his reverent fear of the Lord. That leads me to the second way Noah prepared for judgment. You might be going, oh, that was just the first. But I won't have to walk you through as much text, so don't fear. Let's talk about Noah's hope. Noah's hope. What must it have been like? I just want you to think about this for a moment. What must it have been like in Noah's day to watch Noah build an ark, to have been Noah building an ark, In a generation that thought he was crazy. How lonely must he have felt? I mean, he was a gospel preacher who was rejected by all of his hearers. Noah was a herald of righteousness in a wicked generation. Noah preached and Noah built for 120 years. He was ignored and mocked and saw no fruit from his labors among those in his own generation. And by continuing to build, he condemned that generation. Matthew Henry says it this way. Every blow of his axes and hammers was a call to repentance. A call to them to prepare arcs too. But since by it he could not convince the world, by it he condemned the world. When he was heralding the gospel only to be rejected by all of his hearers, imagine how difficult And lonely that must have been. How easy would it have been for him to question himself? How hard would it have been to be reviled and persecuted, to have all sorts of evil said falsely against your name by pretty much the entire known world? And imagine that suffering and that struggle to believe what you cannot see for a hundred and twenty years. Years. How did he endure? How did he endure? Some of you are suffering now. Maybe for two months. Maybe for ten years. You're believing that God is good even though you feel like you can't see that. How did Noah endure so long? Because when the Lord blessed him with faith in his promises, he also gave him the gift of hope. Hebrews 11.1, which I don't love the ESV translation, but I'm going to read it to you. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think the King James Version is a better translation when it says faith is the substance of the things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. In other words, when you believe in Christ, you grasp hold of him. You grasp hold of Christ. He is really yours, and you are really his. You don't merely have some idea that it might be true. You have really 
apprehended him. You've gotten hold of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our righteousness. That has really happened. And beloved, Christ is your hope. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain goes where God dwells. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Believers in Christ, we have our hope anchored in heaven in Christ. We endure ridicule and persecution through this precious hope. Noah endured 120 years of ridicule and difficulty and was anchored by his hope in Christ. Noah knew this hope. Thus Noah could rejoice when he was persecuted for righteousness sake. Because he knew that the kingdom of heaven belonged to him. So Noah kept his eyes on Christ. And friends, God has given us that same hope too. It's imperative that we keep our eyes on Christ in heaven. And not here on earthly matters and concerns. Children, kids, the younger you are, the more you tend to only think about this life. Heaven seems a kind of distant reality. And you think about school and sports and games and your future in this life. That's what you think about all the time. But kids, I want to tell you that There are two reasons that you need to keep your eyes not on the here and now because keeping them on the here and now is unwise. Why? First, you will soon find out that this life is filled with a myriad of disappointments. I know it's like, parents, you bring your church this morning and the first thing the pastor says to your children is, your life will be disappointing to you. (laughs) But if your eyes are set here, if your eyes are set here, then your life will be riddled with anxiety as you grasp after things that are too slippery to ever be kept in your grip. I'll give you the analogy of fishing. Have you ever been fishing? I've been fishing once with my son. It was terrible. I'll never do it again. We were in Alaska. I loved Alaska, but we were there. It was a privilege for us to be there. It was beautiful. And we were salmon fishing, and we were limiting out in under an hour with no bait. So if you men who love to fish understand what that means... You'd be like, how could you not find that glorious? I was like, this is dull. These fish practically jumped into our boat, right? (laughs) But they were slippery. Every time we pulled them up, we'd go to grab that salmon, and it's wiggling around, and it's as slippery as can be, and we can't get a hold of it. Well, kids, you'll find soon that this life and all it offers is like that. Your body will begin to break down as you age. Your money will come and go. Family and friends will come and go. Everything eventually dies. There's no eternal hope here. And if you try to grip for dear life to the slippery hopes of this world, you will find yourself overcome with anxiety as you lose your grip. Don't miss the anchor for your souls. Only your eternal hope in Jesus will keep you steady 
through the various storms of this life. Second, children, you do not know at what hour Christ will come. You need to trust in him and hope in him. I remember when I was an unwise 18, 19, 20-year-old Christian thinking, well, Jesus, I'm pretty confident you're at least going to wait until after I get married. And hoping for that foolishness. You do not know what hour or what hour Christ will come. You need to trust in him. You need to hope in him. If your eyes are down here on earthly hopes, rather than looking up to Christ, then you'll miss your very great reward of eternal life in Christ. So Noah prepared for judgment by trusting in and hoping in Christ. And this leads to my third point, Noah's love. Look with me again at Genesis 6.22, and we'll sort of wrap it up here. Noah's love. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah listened to God's word, and Noah did what God said. Noah did all that God commanded him. Did you hear that? When the Lord graciously spoke the gospel to Noah, the Holy Spirit shed the love of God abroad in Noah's heart. If the law is just out here external to you on tablets of stone, for example, and never here in your heart, you will not be able to keep it. You will not desire to keep it. You will not love the law, as David talks about, meditating on it day and night. It's my delight. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. How do you get a heart that loves the Lord? Well, the Holy Spirit has to take that law external to you and write it on your heart. He has to give you a new heart. We call it being born again. So that you love him and When he does come to you and give you the grace of faith so that you're righteous in Christ, he doesn't stop there with some kind of truncated grace. He begins the work of transforming you from the inside out so that you want to walk with God because you love him. The Holy Spirit does this work. Noah believed, Noah hoped, and Noah's heart was filled with love for God. Noah knew that here in his love, not that he first loved God, but that God first loved him. And, if you will, promised, in Noah's case, to give his son as a propitiation for his sins. Beloved, Christ loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. It is when you hear God's love to you in Christ by the Spirit, through faith, it is then that your love for him is given birth in your heart. Those things happen. They come, in some sense, together. And then your desire is to live in accord with his law. His law defines for you how you love him and others. It doesn't cause you to love him and others. Michael Horton uses the example of Railroad tracks, the laws like railroad tracks. It makes sure the train goes in the right direction. 
but the tracks don't make the train move. The grace of God, the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Spirit makes the train move. When God comes and saves you, you have a new desire to love God's people for his sake. And you love the world around you for his sake as well. Even your enemies. And we see that in Noah, don't we? Heralding righteousness in a world of enemies. He knew that God showed such love to an unworthy sinner like him that he desired to show the same love to others. May the Lord be pleased to do that same work in us. May he be pleased with that same work in us. We sinned, and the Lord saved. We rejected the Lord, and he pursued us in loving kindness. We grasped after all that he was made as if it was made for our own glory. And yet the Son of God laid aside the glory he had with the Father in the taking of frail humanity to himself and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross so that he might save us and catch this, share his glory with us. What manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? And so we are. So we are. May the Spirit cause us to humbly trust in Christ, to hope in Christ, and really to burst forth in love for his name, to him and to all those whom he has made. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would continue those of us who trust in Christ to look to him in faith, that you would strengthen our faith, deepen us in hope and love for you, for your church, and for the people around us. May we rejoice in Christ and speak of him to others so that they might be saved. Father, for those who do not believe, if there are any present here, may you cause them by your grace to trust in Christ and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.